continuing through a series that comes from a book called The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. It's a book about spiritual disciplines and how important spiritual disciplines are in our lives. As believers, the moment that we put faith in Christ, we are justified. I mean, we are brought into relationship with God solely on what Jesus Christ has done for us, period. But there is a process of the kingdom of God working itself out in our day-to-day lives, in how we act, how we treat one another, uh, what we prioritize in our lives. Living in the kingdom is a process, and all of us are on that journey, on that process. And that is what the Bible refers to as sanctification, that process of what's been done in us working itself out in our, our lives. And spiritual disciplines help us do that. They help us get control over some of the issues that we're fighting in our lives or help bring kingdom living or kingdom values out in our lives in different ways. And so this is a great resource to come back to. Um, One of the opening chapters actually talks about the different ways, if you're struggling in a certain area, how you can pick a certain discipline to help you in your struggle against that, to try to bring kingdom life out in your lives. Um, It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of book, but uh, I believe there's a lot of great resource. And so um, today I've titled the message, Handle with Care. Handle with Care. And last week, we, we finished up um, the series, uh, or the, the spiritual discipline on giving or secrecy, the life of freedom, breaking off approval addiction. And I talked about giving, I talked about tithing and faith promises and supporting our global partners and we were part of a version plan. If you got on version this week and were a part of that devotional, listening to some of the stories and the testimonies about giving. <coughs> and I know that the church, Universal, and probably even some people within our church, view some of the passages on giving differently. And that's why last week I didn't say, here's the law, here's how you have to do it, you have to tithe, you have to do this, you have to give that. Um, But I will tell you that these markers, that tithing, that giving, that offerings, that faith promises, that giving outside of church to even just uh, someone in need, um, and sometimes doing that in secret, are invitations from God to experience the kingdom of God. Because God, by nature, is a giver. And a lot of times we we limit it. We um, We bring what we want to the Scripture. And actually, today we're going to be shifting the conversation um, towards how to look at the Scripture or meditating on the Scripture, and uh, that's why I'm talking about Handle with Care, but I really feel like these tie in so well, uh, where we were last week and where we're going to go this week, because a lot of times, it's not that we feel like the Bible does or does not support tithing, it's we've already chosen which one we'd rather do, and so we go to the Word to try to value or try to validate our opinion rather than actually go to the word and let it speak to us. Um, Or sometimes we use guilt as a motivation, and we tithe only out of guilt and only out of obligation. And as we talked about last week, um, Paul says over and over, don't give grudgingly. Um, You know, (laughs) tithing obediently but grudgingly, I don't know that it's going to have the benefit of the kingdom in our lives. We've got to get our attitude and our obedience working together. If you are willing and obedient, Isaiah says, you will eat of the goodness of the land. Like, these things go together. And so I'm not telling you one way or another, do or don't do. I'm just saying, make sure your do and your attitude work together. 
and make sure that we're not coming to the word because we use all kinds of excuses about we talked last week about fiscal responsibility and transparency and we want to make sure that every place that we give money to is like handling money well and um, but we have Abraham who gave a tithe to Melchizedek and we don't even know who this guy was priest and king of Salem I mean our mind can go in all kind of directions there I mean I think when I think of Salem I think of like witch trials and all kinds of stuff and I'm that's not what it means in in the Hebrew so please don't take that but um, he gave him this tithe, and we don't even know who the guy was, okay? And remember who Jesus' treasurer was. Don't forget, Jesus was taking in a whole lot of money for his ministry. And his treasurer was a guy that was skimming off the top. Don't think Jesus didn't know that. And so I'm not saying give to ministries that are dishonest, but make sure that we're not putting our, what our desires onto what we believe from the Scripture. I wanted to share with you a story last week about a guy named Stanley Tam who gave most of his, bus- or actually he turned his entire business over to the Lord. Um, I put it on Slack. If you are on Slack and have it, if you want to read that testimony, um, Mark Batterson shares that story in his Draw the Circle de- devotional. Um, but it's a guy that really gave away millions throughout his lifetime and really began to understand this gift of giving. And so um, it's not just about tithing. It's not about faith promises. It's like just learning to be extravagant in every area of our lives. And so um, as we talk about the scripture this week and this idea of sometimes bringing our, um, our preconceived ideas or our, our cultural or our personal biases to the book, uh, we do that a lot of times, and sometimes we do it without even knowing we're doing it. And if you look at the scripture, there are, uh, is a time when David built his own house. And he built this luxurious palace. And then he looks out and he sees God's temple, God's the Ark of the Covenant in a tent, and he feels guilty. He's like, oh, God, i got to build you a house. I mean, it's not right that I have this beautiful house and you're in a tent. And God comes to him and he's like, David, I don't need a house. I don't, I don't need you to build me a house. I mean, I, I, heaven is my, 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 my throne, and the earth is my footstool. He's, and he's, but he allows David's son Solomon to build him a temple. And the temple was a part of what God had designed for the story he was writing. But why is his initial thought to David, David, I don't need you to build me a house? And later in the book of Haggai, when the people of Israel come back from exile, and the temple of God is lying in ruins, and they're all building their own houses. Haggai comes with a word from the Lord, and he rebukes them because they're building their own houses and not building the temple. I mean, it's almost like a complete reversal of what he told David. Now it's like, now you need the house or what? And it's not that God needs a house. He doesn't need a house. The temple was a part of his story. But God didn't want David to build him a house out of guilt. But at the same time, God doesn't want his people to be apathetic towards his temple or towards his house. And we know in the New Testament, we are his temple. But my point is, we can go to the scripture and we can find something to twist, but when we look at the scripture in its entirety, the scripture is telling us a story. And it's drawing together passages from Old Testament, New Testament, this book and that book. And it's giving us a complete picture of what the kingdom of God is like and how to conform our lives to it. The Bible is in essence, a collection of 66 different books that's written over a span of 1,600 years by 40 different authors. But yet the Bible is one complete story of what God is doing 
in our world, what he's always been doing, what his plan has been and always been. We sometimes in our Western culture treat the Bible like a Western textbook. We use it as a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts. We use it as a scientific textbook to prove creation or prove the flood. We use it as a history book that's giving us the facts and the details, and we want charts and graphs and lists, and we're very linear thinking. But that's not really how the Bible was written. Now, I'm not saying there's not facts in it. I'm not saying there's not historical parts, and I'm not saying that creation isn't necessarily scientifically provable. But the scripture was written in an Eastern culture with an Eastern mindset. It uses symbolism. It uses Eastern narrative. It uses thoughts that are tied together. When Jesus tied together the two greatest commandments, those two commandments weren't just because he was like, well, I think this one and this one because he was the son of God. This was actually a debate happening in Jewish thought. And there were two passages that were linked together in the Hebrew scriptures by language. And those two scriptures were love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor who is like yourself. And that's where Jesus comes up with his conclusion that these are the two greatest commandments. It comes from knowing the entire narrative of God's story, not just by picking and choosing one scripture here or there. And so we have to be careful when we we read the scripture, when we study the scripture, that we treat it as a book that was not written specifically to us. (coughs) Now hear me. I'm going to take a lot of, you're going to be able to fall asleep at some point today because I'm going to talk in a pretty conversational tone to kind of keep my voice there. (coughs) And if you fall asleep and wake back up, you will have the potential to take something I said way out of context. So please make sure you go back and re-listen and make sure that that you're taking it the way I actually said it. Because when I say the Bible wasn't written specifically to us, it is written for us. But it is written to a different audience. In fact, it's a Jewish book written by Jewish authors to a Jewish audience. And without understanding that, we cannot properly make application for our lives today. If we take it as a book that was written specifically to us in this time period today, we will misrepresent it in our world today. And we will take our understanding of the world around us and we will impose it on the Bible rather than letting the scripture mold and shape our understanding, letting it transform our hearts and minds. We will cherry pick scriptures to fit our narrative. If you're not familiar with the term cherry pick, it just means that we overlook certain things and we suppress certain things and we just take certain parts of it without getting a complete picture. It's used a lot in basketball for the guy that doesn't want to play defense. He just cherry picks. He stays down at the other end or stays at right around half court, doesn't engage in the defensive side because he wants an easy basket on the offensive side. Cherry pickers, they drive us all nuts, okay? Maybe they only drive me nuts because I'm not really a good offensive player. I really just tried to be a good defender because I wasn't that good on the other side of the ball. So, but cherry pickers, that's what we do. And we don't want to do that with the scripture. We don't want to just pull out a part that fits our narrative or makes me feel better about my worldview. We want to make sure that we're handling the Bible with care. Understanding the nature of the scripture, how it was written, who it was written to. I don't even know if you know this, but the order that our Old Testament books are put in is not even the order that they were in when Jesus walked the earth. Yeah, the Hebrew scriptures are referred to as the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuim. I think I pronounced those right. 
Um, that wasn't in my notes, so just totally going off memory there. But the law, the first five books of the Bible, then what they, the prophets, we call them history books, they call them prophets. There's a big difference. When you start reading something as prophecy, not history, it takes a whole different lens. And then the writings. And so when we put the scriptures in a different order, sometimes it skews how we read them and how we understand them. And I'm not saying everything we think about the Bible is wrong. Please don't walk out of here today saying, we can't know anything, we don't know anything. That's not what I'm saying. But I am trying to bring a little correction to the way that we've handled the scripture throughout the years. One of those is what I've already alluded to. When there's three different or four different Greek words for the word love, but we only have one word in English, how do we get the meaning? How do we know exactly what's happening? And yeah, we can do context sometimes, but sometimes we have to dig a little deeper. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, there are some that think that our salvation depends upon us handling the word totally correctly. Can I just tell you, if we have to know every, if we have to handle every part of this book absolutely correctly in order to make it into heaven, none of us are going. Because there's none of us that have got this whole book figured out. Now, the foundation of what we believe is Christ crucified, faith in him, total reliance upon his work on the cross, and commitment to follow what he says in his book, to live in that kingdom. Now, I agree with that totally, but the idea that any of us is ever going to have it all right without anyone else to help correct us or mold us, I just don't think it's possible. I think for the rest of our lives, you and I are going to be growing in our understanding of this book. And it's important that we do that. We don't want to live with apathy or indifference. There's a danger. Don't treat the grace of God uh, apathetically or indifferently. Don't just be like, well, what's the matter? I'll just live however I want. No, no, no. There's a call here to study, to dig in, okay? But there's also a do-your-best principle here, okay? Make sure you're applying these principles, but understand you're not perfect. <laughs> and if you think you are, be careful, I mean, when you look around at all the different denominations, which one's the most right? I mean, of course, the Assemblies of God, right? Because we're here. Are we? And even within the Assemblies of God, how to interpret certain parts of the Bible? We can't even agree within our own denomination how to handle some of these scriptures. And so we are in a process of working that out. And I know what happens is we tend to get afraid. Because there's a slippery slope. Like if we start saying that, you know, some of these things, we, if we start changing our views, then we're just going to go all the way. And there's this fear that we're going to just call evil good. And, you know, that's a danger. And in fact, that's in the scripture. There's a warning. Don't do that. But there's also a scripture where we think we're always right. That's on the other side of that. And we have got to find this road to walk where we're open to what other people are saying or believing or interpreting, and we're having that conversation with an open mind to be able to understand what God is saying to us. Now, the truth is, all of us believe we're accurate. I know that some of us think that other people think they're always right, but we all do. Every person that breathes thinks they're always right. I mean, some of us loudly think we're always right, and some people more quietly and subtly think they're always right. But we all do. We all think we're correct. 
in how we, we live or how we interpret the scripture. But I believe we need each other to make sure that we do not become an echo chamber in and of ourselves. We all have the potential to twist the word of God to give us what we desire. Paul warned of it and said people are going to gather around themselves, people that give them what their itching ears want to hear. You'll find whatever you need to support whatever it is you want to live or believe. You will. There will be someone today teaching it, believing it, showing it. You'll find it. But I believe the scripture calls us to, to live life, to do community with people we can observe up front. Because we look at some people that are teaching from far away, and we're like, oh, what they're teaching doesn't match what, what they're living. And we don't even know what they're living because we don't actually see them living. But when we come together in a body where we see each other, where we should see each other more than on just Sunday, where we live life with each other, and we help each other understand the scripture, this is how we wrestle out what the word of God is saying. Now, if there's someone that I do life with and I trust and I know, and they say, hey, listen to this person that I'm in relationship with, it gives me someone else that I can bring into my circle, even though I don't have a direct relationship with them, I can trust them because of the person I trust. And I can grow my understanding of scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3, here's the warning. Verse 15, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given him. Okay, Paul was given wisdom. He speaks about these things in all his letters. But there are some things hard to understand in them. This is Peter, who did life with Jesus for three years, who was baptized with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so we at least know he got it, even if we are cessationists and don't believe it's still for today. He was at Cornelius' house, and he says Paul's writings are hard to understand. And yet we think we've got Paul down. Ah, maybe we need to remain teachable. The untaught and the unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. Be careful not to cut up the pieces of Scripture to fit our narrative. In the West, we tend to emphasize vices over virtues. Things that the Bible says don't do, we think are more important than what the Bible says to do. Now, I don't know that the Bible makes a distinction. I think following what God says don't do or what he says do are both pr pretty important. But we tend to look at sexual immorality as being worse than being impatient with someone. Is it? Not defending sexual immorality, but as a pastor, if I commit sexual immorality, I guarantee you my credentials are going to be in trouble. But yet my credentials really aren't in trouble if I'm just impatient or unkind. And maybe they should be. Maybe that's equally important. Maybe stealing and being unkind are equally bad. And so the commands that we have in Scripture to put things on or take things off are not given to us in their entirety. Our lives should just continually be growing and reflecting the nature of God and making sure that we're watching our own lives closely instead of making sure that we're just watching others' lives closely. When it comes to the idea of how we view Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Think of Sodom and Gomorrah in our culture today. Always the first thought is sexual immorality, homosexuality. That's the sin of Sodom, the great sin. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, in context, the only thing from the lips of the Lord that we're told about Sodom is this. The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now, granted, in the context of Genesis 13, we see that Lot has some people there and they want to have sex with them. And that's just, that's right there it is, black and white, Pastor Tom, homosexuality. In Jude chapter, or Jude verse 7, Jude clearly condemns this the same way. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Boom. But did you know that is the only place in the Bible that condemns Sodom and Gomorrah for, for, for sexual immorality? It's the only place. So it's there, I believe, homosexuality in Sodom. I've, God's against it. I get it totally there agree with you but if you go to the books of isaiah and jeremiah and ezekiel you will find all three of them condemning sodom and gomorrah differently in ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 now this was the sin of your sister sodom <laughs> i love that god calls them israel and his sister <laughs> sodom because that's how they were acting she and her daughters were arrogant overfed and unconcerned they did not help the poor and the needy. You'll find that the prophets condemned Sodom for their mistreatment of others, their arrogance, their inhospitality. Now, Jude is obviously writing to a group of a people that already know the prophets. They already know what Sodom was condemned for. So I don't believe Jude is saying um, that in the inhospitality that the prophets condemned was not true. It was actually sexual immorality. I believe he's actually taking a group of people that are committing sexual immorality and making an application that they're familiar with and saying, no, this. What I actually think when I look at all of these scriptures is that lifestyles of arrogance and um, inhospitality and mistreatments of others, all of that eventually leads to casting off all types of restraint. And I think homosexuality and sexual immorality actually come from the arrogant uncaring, my needs only lifestyle. So when we look at our culture and we look at the sexual immorality that's rampant in our culture today and all the gender, where did it come from? And rather than trying to just get everyone to agree with us that sexual immorality is wrong, maybe we should do some repenting of arrogance and whatever it is that's led us to this point. Not saying, again, that one is not a sin. They're both equally wrong in the eyes of God yes but it's easy to cherry pick and make one worse than the other when I think all sin actually gets tied together in a circular pattern it just feeds it we sometimes especially in our world today will use the scripture to promote our political ideology right now the hot button topic is whether or not we should own guns and people on both sides of this issue will use the Bible to prove their opinion. Um, people that think we should have guns will find scriptures that say we should have guns. And people that don't have think we should have guns will use scriptures to show why we shouldn't have guns. And I don't think either one is using the Bible correctly. 
because most of us already have our mind made up about what we think about guns, and we're not actually going to the Bible to, to make sure that we're correct or wrong, not wrong and maybe repenting. We're actually going to the Bible to prove what we already believe and want to do. And a lot of that just comes from our own biases and culture upbringing. We'll do the same thing for coffee. I know I'm not a gun owner. I don't care if you own a gun. I don't mind guns. I'm not against guns. But I would do the same thing with coffee. I would go to the book and say, hey, I don't think the, the Bible says anything about whether or not I should have coffee every day and be addicted to it or not. I don't think the Bible really speaks to that. But is that really what the Bible is saying? Or is that really just what I want to do? And so I'll find a way to prove it. And I have to make sure, and you have to make sure, that we deal with our cultural and personal biases when we come to the book and make sure that we're not using it or twisting it to, to prove our point. By the way, all of the political things that are happening in our world are far more complex than our, our social media memes and our talking points on the news. And there's a whole lot more going on in our world than pulling out one scripture here and there to try to attack it. And as the people of God, we need to become the people of the book and live out the nature and culture of the kingdom everywhere in every aspect of our lives. Speaking the truth in love. In the nature, culture of love. For most of us in this room, we're American. And so we read the scripture through an American cultural lens. Worldwide today, there are 2.3 billion Christians, 2.3 billion. Within the United States, there are 250 million. Do the math quickly, that's about 10% of the church is American. Could be a little bit higher depending on what you, statistics that you look at. Operation World, who I usually trust, says 37% of the church lives in the Americas, but that includes our Canadian friends to the north and our Mexican friends to the south and the Latin American, South American friends to the south. 37% of just the Americas. And yet most of us read the scripture as if we're the only ones. Like how we do culture in America must be what the Bible is about and yet we don't even make up 10% of the church. We ought to be listening to what brothers and sisters around the world are hearing and drawing out of scripture to help us be able to correct where our biases are, because we have them. I don't even know where all mine are yet. I know I have them, and I know that I'm probably clinging to some that I'm not going to let go of, but I hope one day I allow myself to be teachable enough to let go of. George Washington said this in the founding of our country. In a land like this, which heaven has blessed above all lands, I wonder how the rest of the 90% of the world uh, views that statement. Why is any man hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison? Why but through his unpardonable sloth? So what the founding of our country says is that if you're poor, it's only because you're lazy. Now, I love George Washington. I love our nation. I love our country. Not trying to badmouth anybody, especially on Memorial Weekend. Please hear me. But this idea that everyone who's poor is just lazy is not true. And it's not supported by Scripture. And I know we could go to 2 Thessalonians 3.10 and we could say, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. But I could pull out countless Scriptures that say, Give to the poor, serve the poor, 
give to the poor over and over and over throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And then I can come to Matthew 26, 11 and say, the poor you will always have with you. Jesus himself said, you're always going to have the poor with you. We're supposed to be serving the poor. And sometimes that means helping them get a handle on their lives and maybe helping them get a job or keep a job. But every person who's poor is not lazy. And sometimes in our American cultural bias, we think that. And we bring that to this book and we let it shape our mindset. So over the next month, here's what I want us to do. 61 years ago, Vince Lombardi walked into the training camp of the Green Bay Packers. And he stood in front of 36 professional athletes who had just a few months before that watched their championship dreams slip through their fingers. It was the summer of 1961, and Vince Lombardi started the camp holding this in the air, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. 36 professional athletes do not need to be told this is a football. But in those five words, he communicated his point. If you want to be successful, we're going to remember the basics, and we are going to execute the fundamentals. You never graduate past the basics. You build on them, but you never move past them. His focus throughout the entire training camp continued in this way. Each player reviewed and remembered the fundamentals of their position, how to defend and tackle, how to catch and throw, how to stand and run, and ultimately how to think. They would take nothing for granted. Six months later, the same group of men gathered to hear another one of Vince Lombardi's speeches, this time to celebrate their NFL championship and the 37-0 victory over the New York Giants. By remembering the fundamentals, they had become the best in the league at the tasks everyone else took for granted. So for the next month, and maybe for the rest of our lives, Restoration Church, this is a Bible. And as we go through this next month, what I want all of us to do is to resist the urge, yeah, I know that. And I want us to maybe take a step back and get really basic about what the Bible is, how we interpret the Bible, how we read the Bible, how we use the Bible. In Acts chapter 17, we have a story about the Apostle Paul preaching to two different cities at the time. He's teaching in the synagogues to Jews who really, at the, in that day, the church is made up mostly of Jewish believers or Jewish Christians. And so Paul, every time he goes into a community, is trying to preach to the Jews because they already have the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's trying to help them understand them. The problem is they already have a bias, a paradigm for how to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And the apostle Paul is coming in preaching Jesus and a resurrection that fits the narrative of the Old Testament, but it's outside their paradigm. And so he goes into Thessalonica and his word is not received very well. In fact, there's a riot, there's an uproar, they try to beat them, Paul and Silas run out of town. They go into the house of one of the church leaders and they drag him out. He's not even the one preaching, and they beat him. I mean, don't say that biases are not strong things. Because this is how the Thessalonians reacted. 
So then Paul goes to Berea, and in verse 10, we get this story. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, just down the road. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were open-minded. They believed that there could be validity to what this guy is saying. That's the first step. We just have to be open-minded. We don't have to accept everything everybody says because that's not where they stopped. They didn't just say, oh, here comes a new teaching. Oh, let's just believe that. Let's put, let's put everything in. What did they do? They listened eagerly. They listened. They didn't debate. They didn't pull out other scriptures and say, what about this? They just listened. It would behoove us to just be a people for the next 30 days who just listen. Just listen to other people. Ask other people questions about their interpretations of Scripture and do nothing but listen. People from different cultures, people from different denominations, people from different upbringings, people from everywhere. Listen to podcasts, read books. We are blessed in our world today to have access to the minds of people all around the world. N.T. Wright has become one of my favorite authors. I mean, an Anglican minister from England who obviously looks at the Scripture in a lot of ways way different than me, but has taught me so much about what I've been missing all along. And it hasn't thrown a wrench into my theology and made me abandon the assemblies of God. I'm still here. I think what I believe still lines up with the assemblies of God. But it's made me a better person in listening to others around me and making sure there's room for them at my table. Then, after they listened eagerly, <clears throat> they searched the scriptures day after day. They didn't just get a five-minute devotion book for busy people. <laughs> uh, devotional reading is good. It has a place in our lives. But guys, there's a time to study this book to start diligently searching it day after day. Not just to read a version app that like gives us something we want to hear, but like gets us through the whole book. Helps us to read and study Leviticus and understand why it's there and the purpose that it still serves for us today. Because there is a point to Leviticus, and it's not just do's and don'ts. They're not just all nullified because of the cross. It helps us understand the story God has always been telling and the priesthood which we are all now called into. There's a lot in there, but you can't just read it without some type of commentary or someone to help us understand it. Because in our Western world, Leviticus is stupid and it doesn't make any sense. But if we let someone who, ha who has some understanding come alongside us as we study Leviticus, it opens up a whole new world. And it's important for us. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek men and women. If you keep reading in chapter 17, you'll find out that the Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul was there, heard that he was gaining momentum, and came there to try to, to kill him. Bias is a really strong thing. Hear me. And be careful when you think you don't have one. We all do. And we want to make sure that we're not killing someone that's pointing ours 
out. We want to thank them. So the approach, this is a Bible. We got to study it. We got to dig in. We got to study it together. Together. In the Old Testament or in the New Testament church, they did not have personal copies of their Bible to take home with them. They did not have phones that everywhere they went, they had the Bible app with them. The only way they could study the scriptures was together, communally. And that's actually the way God intended it to be. Because if I just study it alone, I don't need other people, Pastor Tom. I just need the the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The problem is I can make the Holy Spirit sound a whole lot like me. And the Holy Spirit and I can become an echo chamber. And over the the 46 years that I've been alive on on earth, I have watched a lot of things done in the name of the Holy Spirit that actually contradict this book. You can twist the word in our echo chambers to give us what we want to hear. When we study it together, we get a fuller picture of the truth. The apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, pastors, there were at least five different perspectives that had to come together in the New Testament to get the body of Christ full and complete. We like to study the Bible with other prophets. I like to study the Bible with other apostles. I like to study the Bible with other teachers because they think like me. They look like me. They act like me. I don't like it when the apostles come in because they mess everything all up. Most of the time, it's not about me pointing out how someone else is wrong, but it's about the Holy Spirit using both of us to correct each other enough that we get to a fuller understanding of truth. See, we have this idea that this one's right, this one's wrong, but sometimes we're both on the right track and we need each other as we study the word together to point that out. The reason I invite you to be a part of Version Bible apps and to share what you think and what you see, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with someone else. You need to be kind. But we can, hey, this, what about this? What does this mean? Or I read this once and how does that fit in here? That's how we grow. That's how we understand. We have to study the Bible together, and we have to study the Bible with diversity. Diversity. Look at this. What what do we have here in Berea? We have Jews and Greeks. We have men and women. Praise God for men's Bible studies. Praise God for women's Bible studies. Praise God for these one culture's Bible studies. But we need diversity in our understanding of the Scripture or we will become an echo chamber unto ourselves. It's not that we always have to do it one way, but we have to make sure there are people at our table that are going to challenge the biases that you and I have in our lives. Look for books. Look for podcasts. Some of the best advice that I've ever heard comes from C.S. Lewis. When you read books, he says, for every three new books you read, read one old book. Because while we're learning new things and we're understanding new things, there are a lot of timeless truths that we need to make sure we stay anchored to. So if all you're reading is new stuff, chances are you're moving some boundary stones that you need to keep right where they are. Balance your book reading. Don't just say, oh, I just need the Bible. If you just needed the Bible, you wouldn't be here today listening to me teach. There wouldn't be teachers in the the church. The Lord himself said we need teachers. 
Why did he say that? Because you and I need one another to grow in our understanding of the scripture. Every tribe, every nation, every language, every people studying the word together. The last thing that I'd love to challenge us to do is to stay teachable. To stay teachable. To say this, it's okay to be wrong. Love that Christy said this morning, he wants obedience, not perfection. Sometimes we have a hard time admitting that maybe our understanding of a passage was wrong. Maybe our viewpoint was wrong. It's okay to be wrong. It does not define you as a person. The work of Christ defines you. In fact, if you and I are not be di being disciplined in our understanding of the Scripture, Hebrews 12.8, if you're not disciplined, everyone undergoes discipline, you're not legitimate. I want to be legitimate. Where am I wrong? I'm not trying to say we got to correct everything, but Lord, show me, make me, help me to stay teachable. Philippians 2, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than ourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So this week, I invited you either yesterday on the, the Church Center app, the, the text message that went out, or on Version, if we're friends on Version, to do a Bible reading plan that's put out by the Bible Project that just says, what's the Bible? And every day there's a short video that they put together. I'm not saying that everything the Bible Project people say is gold. I disagree with a bunch. But they have an understanding of the Bible as a narrative that helps us adjust how we read the Scripture. It's 19 days. For some of you, 19 days is like, oh, that's no big deal. For others, 19 days might as well be seven years. If you miss a day, praise God, just get caught up. Go, you can read forever. From now until Jesus comes, you can go back and you can read people's comments and you can interact with it. But for 19 days, let's begin to study the Scripture together and start a conversation about this being a Bible, being teachable, being humble, listening, asking questions, resisting the urge to say, I already know this, and saying, God, show me what I need to see. One month will not make us experts on this book. <laughs> It'll be a beginning. One month will not show us where all of our biases are that need to be corrected. I feel like I've been working on my biases now for about three years, and I don't even know that I've scratched the surface yet. I am grateful for my new Canadian friend. I have a lot of Canadian friends who can help me understand even some of the biases just by talking to someone who's from the, our country to the north. There's so much good that comes from these conversations. Now I just put a lot of pressure on him to be able to say something wise to us in the Bible reading plan. But no. But the point is, we have got to get outside of just hearing what we've always heard and make sure. If nothing else, it'll validate what we know to be true. If it's true, it'll get validated. But if it's not, it'll correct us where we need to be corrected. This is about learning to be at the table together. This is what the table represents. So join me over the next 19 days as we start this journey and we start talking about the importance of Scripture and how to handle it with care. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for never treating us as our sins have deserved.
Thank you that while we were your enemies, you demonstrated your love for us by sending your son to this earth. Thank you for giving us your word. God, this story that shows the plan that you have always had for this world from beginning to end. And I just pray that, God, as we dive into this month ahead and we start wrestling with some of the biases that we have, some of the things that maybe culturally or personally, our personal preferences that we've imposed on the scripture, whether through our upbringing or just through our own selfish desires, God, I pray that you'd reveal them to us. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you're saying through other people in the body over these days. Help us to understand your word in a way that we never have understood it before so that we can apply it better to our lives so that we can make a difference in this community and in our world today. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you. Teach us and train us with your word. Rebuke us and correct us with your word. Help us as a body to grow closer together. Help us as a body, God, to be more like you've intended us to be all along. In this month ahead, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we dive in, if you didn't get the invitation and you want that invitation to the Version Bible reading plan, if you don't have Version, I'll try to help you to get into that plan. If you can't, um, want to find a way to get you involved or plugged into that. But uh, it's a great way for us to be able to be connected, interact with the Scripture throughout the month. And so don't forget to stop by the table before you leave today. Um, information out there for you. Offering baskets are out there as well. Thanks for being here today. God bless you as you go home.